As much as I hate to admit it, for as long as mankind has walked the earth, there has always been conflict. Countless battles throughout the eons have been waged for every reason imaginable by all peoples across time. As technology advanced, the definition of war has come to mean different things. Most wars are waged in the name of power, greed, and control all thinly veiled behind a facade of justice. But this idea of conflict was not a common one among the Native Americans, specifically before the Europeans showed up. These wars were fought in the name of grief. Follow us today as we see what it was actually like. I'm Scott Parrish, and you're listening to Dying to Eat, the podcast that delves into different cultures and nations of the world throughout time while exploring the different attitudes about death and food. If you love history, good eating, and fascinating stories, then I have a great show in store for you, so stick around till the end to see what's cooking this week. I'd also like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, TheTailoredHemp.com. The New York Times asked, Does CBD work? They continued with the FDA-approved Epidolix, a purified CBD extract to treat seizures in patients two years and older after three randomized, double-blind, and placebo-controlled clinical trials with 516 patients that showed the drug, taken along with other medications, helped reduce seizures. These types of studies are the gold standard in medicine. So when you're looking for high-quality CBD products, go to the experts, thetailoredhemp.com. Now on with the show. Before the Europeans arrived in America and set down their roots, warfare tactics looked pretty different compared to the rest of the world at the time. Native Americans rarely engaged in all-out battle. Instead, they resorted to what would today be called guerrilla tactics. Almost all conflict was engaged through ambush and the element of surprise. It was only after a particularly severe attack that a chief would gather several hundred warriors and lay siege to an entire village. Even then, most of these conflicts were not over things like land, resources, politics, or for religious purposes. Conquering was not something the Native Americans took value in. These were blood feuds, ancient rivalries that had existed since the first man. It's difficult to say when and how some of these blood feuds started, but through Nellie Grace's research, it is based around a set of laws that Native Americans followed in order to settle disputes and resolve animosity. When a tribe member was killed, it was the duty of the victim's tribe to seek vengeance. This was called blood revenge. And it was a private matter, not an act against the public. In turn, the killer's tribe had a sacred duty to respect that revenge and be indifferent when the victim's tribe came to extract their price. But, if a non-relative extracted revenge, this was considered a separate killing, calling for its own retaliation in return. It's basically an eye for an eye taken to the extreme. This notion of blood laws was the foundation for Native American legal systems and was very unforgiving as well as complex. It doesn't matter whether the killings were accidental or premeditated. Some tribes even extended this law to hunting, so even killing the wrong prey could spark a conflict. But not all blood feuds ended it with death. I should probably clarify that I mean when I say Native Americans 
as there are hundreds of tribes. For this episode, we'll be looking at the Mohawk, Oneida, Seneca, Onondaga, Kiyuga, and the the Tiscarora. But that's a lot of long words for my simple English tongue to say, so we're going to call them all collectively by a simpler and more well-known name, the Iroquois. The Iroquois Confederacy, or Six Nations People, were a tribe in the New York area of the United States and extended north into Quebec and west into the Great Lakes area at its, at its peak. As they were an amalgamation of different tribes, they were essentially a melting pot of different traditions and cultures that all merged into one. At the time of the first European contact, the Iroquois lived in a small number of large villages scattered throughout their territory. Each nation had between one and four villages at any one time, and villages were moved approximately every five to twenty years as soil and firewood were depleted. These settlements were surrounded by a palisade and usually looked like a defensible area such and usually located in a defensible area, you know, like a hill with access to water. Because their appearance with the palisades, Europeans termed them as castles. Villages were usually built on level or raised ground surrounded by log palisades and sometimes they had ditches around those. Within the villages, the inhabitants lived in longhouses. Now, longhouses varied in size from 15 to 150 feet long and 15 to 25 feet in breadth. Longhouses were usually built in layers of elm bark on a frame of rafters and standing logs raised upright. Usually between 2 and 20 families lived in a single log house with sleeping platforms being 2 feet above the ground and food left to dry on the rafters. Wow, man, talk about a place that you had to share your your living space and sleeping space. I, I don't know about staying with 20 families. So a castle might contain... 20 or 30 longhouses. In addition to the castles, the Iroquois also had a smaller settlement which might be occupied seasonally by smaller groups. For example, if you had a special hunting or fishing group that stayed away from the village for a while or the castle for a while. Living in the smoke-filled longhouses often caused conjunctivitis. The Iroquois are a mix of horticulturists, farmers, fishers, gatherers, and hunters, though traditionally their main dish came from farming. For the Iroquois, farming was traditionally women's work, and the entire process of planting, maintaining, harvesting, and cooking were all done by the women. Gathering also traditionally had been a job of women and children. Wild roots, greens, berries, and nuts were gathered in the summer. During spring, sap was tapped from maple trees and boiled into maple syrup and herbs were gathered for medicine. After the coming of the Europeans, the Iroquois started to grow apples, pears, cherries, and peaches. Historically, the main crops cultivated by the Iroquois were corn, beans, and squash, which are called the Three Sisters and in Iroquois tradition were considered the special gifts from the Creator. These three crops could be ground up into hominy and soups in clay pots. All of these foods were high in protein, potassium, and fiber. And as a result, the Iroquois were sturdy and strong people. Like many cultures, the Iroquois' spiritual beliefs changed over time and varied across tribes. Generally, 
The Iroquois believed in numerous deities, including the Great Spirit and the Thunderer and the Three Sisters, the spirits of beans, maize, and squash. The Great Spirit was thought to have created plants, animals, and humans to control the forces of good in nature and to guide ordinary people. Orinda was an Iroquoian name for the magical potency found in people in their environment. The spiritual force that flowed through all things and believed if people were respectful of nature, then the Orinda would be harnessed to bring about positive results. There were three types of spirits for the Iroquois. First was those living on earth. The second, those living above the earth. And third, the highest level of spirits controlling the universe from high above, with the highest of those being known variously as the Great Spirit or the Great Creator or the Master of Life. In fact, the very origins of the Iroquois are traditionally told to be spiritual in nature. The Great Peacemaker, a man named Deka Da, along with another man called Hiawatha and a woman called Gigan Shesi, the mother of nations, were the trio of Native Americans all originally from different tribes. Together, they united the tribes in the northeast United States, claiming to be messengers of the Great Spirit itself. Now, here, here's a side note. Ever since we did the episode on the Mormons, I'm seeing similarities between them and other subjects we cover. So, messengers of the Great Spirit. I'm not disagreeing. I believe in the prophets of the Bible. So, back to the subject at hand. They brought forth the law of peace, ending the dark times of terror, and cementing the social standards and gender roles that the Iroquois would come to use for centuries. Though men and women held separate roles within the tribe, the Iroquois followed a matriarchal system, meaning that the important decisions were left to the elderly women of the tribe, called the clan mothers. I guess my grandmother was a clan mother. So the clan mothers would appoint leaders and also strip that same leader of his position if he didn't prove capable or if he became corrupt. They were a group of highly respected women, and even women outside the clan mothers were usually in charge of their own households. While chiefs could come and go, the succession of leadership was passed down through the, matri the matrilineal line from mothers to their children. The property, land, and possessions between a married couple were all held in the woman's name, and if the couple ever wanted to divorce, his possessions became hers. I'm sure for a lot of women out there, that sounds like paradise. As far as the Iroquois and many other tribes saw it, since women were the ones to bear children and raise them, it only made sense that the important decisions were made by them as well. What about the men, you may ask? Well, as you would expect, the men were responsible for hunting for the family. They were expected to bring food back, and they were the warriors, protecting the tribe from invading attacks and avenging the fallen. So, let's talk about what would actually happen when a member of the tribe was killed. Yes, they would extract revenge on the offender, but as I said, not all of these blood feuds ended in death. Sometimes, rather than an eye for an eye, it was a loved one for a loved one. This is where the infamous Iroquois Mourning Wars came into play. Iroquois warriors 
by decree of their clan mothers, would raid enemy tribes in order to take captives. These captives would then replace any lost tribe members that had been killed. Now, you see, to the Iroquois, grief for a loved one who died was a powerful emotion. They believed that it was not, if it, if it wasn't attended to, it would probably cause all sorts of problems for the grieving who would then go mad if left without some consolation. Rituals to honor the dead were very important, and the most important of all was the condolence ceremony to provide consolation for those who lost a family member or a friend. Since it was believed that the death of a family, family member also weakened the spiritual strength of the surviving family members, it was considered crucially important to replace the lost family member by providing a substitute who could be adopted or alternatively could be tortured to provide an outlet for the grief. Hence, that's where the mourning wars came from. These wars were singular in nature. No land was taken. No glory was to be had. Their only purpose was to take captives. A war party was considered successful if it took many prisoners without suffering losses in return. Killing enemies was considered acceptable if necessary, but disproved of as it reduced the number of potential captives. Additionally, war served as a way for young men to demonstrate their valor and their courage. This was a prerequisite for a man who wanted to be chief, and it was also essential for men who wanted to marry and then, hence, you know, um, reproduce. After all, Iroquois women admired warriors who were brave in war. Makes sense, right? But that's a different podcast to talk about. We're not going to keep going down that, that trail. So when the raiding party returned to the tribe with their spoils, all captives, regardless of their sex or age, were stripped naked and tied to poles in the middle of the community. After having sensitive parts of their body burned and some of their fingernails pulled out, the prisoners were allowed to rest and given food and water. At the following days, the captives had to dance naked before the community, and when the individual families decided for each if the person was to be adopted or killed, I guess bad dancers like me just wouldn't have a chance. But listen, then again, my niece Abby, she taught me the nene, so I could probably sneak through. As soon as everybody started laughing, I'd just have to sneak off, right? So women and children are more often adopted than were, say, older men. And if those who were adopted into the Iroquois family made a sincere effort to become Haudenosaunee, which means people of the longhouse, then they would be embraced by the community. And if they did not, then they were swiftly ex executed. So let me ask you listeners a question. What would you do in that situation? For those that weren't lucky enough to be adopted, historians have suggested that some prisoners were killed for a few different reasons. It may have been as simple as no one wanted to adopt that certain prisoner. The prisoner may have appeared to be too weak. Or perhaps the prisoners were killed due to rage or revenge if their tribe had been the one to kill an Iroquois. Furthermore, the ritual torturing that took place was a way to show young Iroquois how to carry themselves through life. Those who were tortured and did not cry out or show pain were revered. 
perhaps even cannibalized in the belief that by eating them, the Iroquois could gain their strength. Regardless, the, the moral for those who watched the torturing and killing was to remain strong. While the violence, kidnapping, and killing shouldn't be remembered fondly, there were some positives from these mourning wars. Besides the fact that this was an interesting concept in history, it did show some positive aspects of the human spirit. The idea that one tribe could adopt members of another into their home and their family in almost immediate fashion must have taken a very, very open society. Plus, there are records of both young and old captives who grew to associate their capturers as their true family. All in all, the Morning Wars saw their greatest use as a desperate attempt by the Iroquois to maintain their manpower so that they could compete against the Europeans. Unfortunately, the Iroquois power dwindled after disease ran rampant through the tribes and also after the members of the Confederacy were split over who would align with which side of the American Revolution. The Iroquois, as powerful as they were, actually tried to avoid battle and conflict whenever possible. You see, the Iroquois believed that if a person were to die a violent death, their spirit would be doomed to wander the land of the living rather than spend eternity with their ancestors. Because of this, those that had fallen in battle were not allowed to be buried in community cemeteries for fear that the deceased spirit would seek, re would seek vengeance on the wrong tribe. To drive away these evil spirits, the Iroquois had the False Face Society. Uh, the False Face Society is it's a group believed to have been founded at the dawn of creation. The False Face Society is probably the best known of the medicinal societies among the Iroquois, especially for its dramatic wooden mask. The wooden False Face masks were made of a white pine, maple, basswood, and poplar. To make a mask, the features were first carved into a living tree, and during the process of carving the mask and the cutting it free, a prayer is addressed to the evolving mask and to the spirit forces which it represents. The mask is then painted and adorned with horsehair. The new mask is consecrated to human service by placing it in hot coals and ashes of the longhouse fire, and all of these masks are characterized with distorted features and deep-set eyes. The noses are bent and crooked. The masks are generally painted red and black and have pouches of tobacco tied into the hair above their foreheads. With regard to the symbolism of the mask, they, they portray the great doctor dwelling at the world's rim, whose broken nose and twisted mouth derive from a mythical struggle with the creator for control of the world. It's kind of a, uh, you know, God versus Satan thing. The, the mask also symbolized the forest-dwelling common faces seen in dreams. In addition, some of the masks are beggar masks, which caricature neighbors and strangers alike. The masks are not artifacts, but living representations of a spirit. One of the rules governing the care of the mask is the need to periodically anoint them with a mixture of sunflower seed oil and animal grease. At the same time, the masks are fed white corn mush 
In payment for their services, tobacco is burned for them and small bags of tobacco are tied to them. Members of the Wooden False Face Society might have been called at any time, night or day, to perform ceremonies for those that were ill. Upon recovery, the patient is expected to join the False Face Society. The actual curing ceremony is sacred and is not to be shared with those outside the society. Traditionally, the Wooden False Face Society would perform two community rituals each year. During the ceremony, the story of the false faces is told. The members of the society wearing their masks then go through the community entering the houses and driving out all sickness, disease, and evil. The connection between the war and the mourning rested on beliefs about the spiritual power of the animated all things, the Orinda that I had mentioned earlier. Because an individual's death diminished the collective power of lineage, clan, and village, Iroquois families conducted requickening ceremonies in which the deceased name and with it the social role and duties it represented were transferred to the successor. In requickenings, people of high status were usually replaced from within the lineage, clan, and village, but at some point, Lower in the social scale, the external source of surrogates inevitably became necessary. Here, warfare made its contribution with those captives that were taking in the mourning wars. At a man's death, his spirit departed for the afterlife. Not for some happy hunting ground, which was the white conception of the Indian afterworld, the Iroquois did not believe he ate food after death, and therefore he had no reason to hunt. It was their custom to bury the dead with their best clothing and the various implements that they had been in the habit of using while they lived. If it was a warrior that they were preparing to, to bury, they placed a tomahawk on his side and a knife in his shield. With the hunter, it was his bows and arrows and implements for cooking his food. With the women, it was their kettles and their cooking apparatus and also food for all. Tobacco was deposited in every grave. To smoke was an Indian's idea of felicity in the body and out of it. Among the Iroquois and many other Indian nations, it was the custom to place the dead upon scaffolds built for the purpose from tree to tree or within a temporary enclosure and underneath a fire was always kept burning for several days, but the Iroquois were very respectful of the spirits of their loved ones. Special wintertime feasts were held for the ghost, who were thought to be unseen, but still participating in the dancing in the games. Man, these were some dancing fools, weren't they? They also accompanied raiding parties, even though they could not, even though they couldn't fight, they could only watch. Throughout the year the Iroquois would celebrate six major festivals. These usually combine a spiritual component and a ceremony, a feast, a chance to celebrate together, sports, entertainment, and dancing. There it is. They love to dance. These celebrations have historically been uh, oriented to the seasons and celebrated based on the cycle of nature. It was a time for the clan to come together and celebrate their dead and enjoy each other's company, as well as something really tasty. Which brings us to my favorite part of the episode. So let's get into what we're cooking this week. How can you talk about the Iroquois and the food without having three sisters in the conversation? Corn or hominy, beans and squash. 
Sounds like the beginning of a good southern style dinner to me. So here's what you need. If you're using fresh boiled or grilled corn on the cob, you're going to need the kernels from three cobs or two cups of canned or frozen corn. Hominy is the more traditional ingredient here. You're going to need two cups of fresh green beans, two cups of peeled and cubed butternut squash. That's uh, about a medium size butternut squash, I'd say. Four cups of chicken broth, two tablespoons of unsalted butter, one teaspoon of salt, one teaspoon of pepper, one teaspoon of garlic powder, one teaspoon of fresh rosemary, and one teaspoon of fresh thyme. Place the butter, the salt, corn, green beans, and corn or hominy in a pot over medium heat. Stir it frequently so it doesn't burn and just heat the vegetables for five or six minutes. What we're trying to do is get the vegetables to begin to soften. <laughs> they begin to soft. What we're trying to get is the vegetables to begin getting soft. Add the broth, pepper, and garlic. Turn the heat to high, and when the soup begins to boil, reduce the heat to simmer. Add the rosemary and thyme, and cook the soup for uh, maybe 30 minutes. Make sure to taste it occasionally to make sure that it doesn't need more seasonings, and if it does, add what you need to. When the soup's finished, I like to let it sit for about 15 minutes or so before serving. This recipe can really be used as a side dish as easily as it can be for an entree. And if you have any left after you eat, let that soup completely cool before putting it in the refrigerator or freezing it. That's it for the recipe. I hope you enjoy it. I'm your host, Scott Parrish, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. I really hope you enjoyed this episode, which was co-written and researched by Nellie Grace and edited and produced by producer Pete. This show is made possible by listeners like you. I'd like to give a special shout out to Jeremy Chandler, Joe Jackson, Joe Kreitz, Philip Burton, Cantrell Dunlap, and Keith Bebout, who are all following us on Facebook. Your support drives the show and we enjoy hearing from you. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Dying to Eat Podcast. Let us know what topics you'd like to hear about. Find future and past episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to drop us a like, a five-star rating, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button to stay updated on the latest episodes. And until next time, stay lively.